0: Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrisson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you, Carlos? I'm fine. How are you, Alberto? Doing good, doing yeah. good. Happy to be back on with you to talk about our next mystic
1: yeah yes this this is a uh one of the, the the stranger types of catholic mystics that one can encounter and there's still some controversy uh, that surrounds her and her mystical experiences
0: so who are we talking about today
1: we're talking about uh, her full name is maria de jesus that was her religious name but she came to be known more as uh by the place name Maria de Jesus de Agreda, also known as the Lady in Blue, or in Spanish La Dama de Azul, in the southwest of the United States. Lores and legends uh, surround her, and I just found out from one of my students who happened to travel to San Angelo, Texas, they've erected a statue to her, so... Uh, and that aspect of, of her life is one of the stranger ones.
0: So tell us a little bit about Maria de Agreda. Uh, where was she born? When? What era are we talking about?
1: Yes, she was born in 1602 in the town of Agreda, which is literally middle of nowhere in the Iberian Peninsula. It's on the border between uh, the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile. So it's in northern Spain northeastern spain but it's it's far to the west of saragossa and barcelona the two big cities in that corner of spain and she well this this is interesting she never left her house because at the age of 15 her mother and father both decided to separate and become monastics and her father and brother packed up and went to a monastery in Burgos, and her mother, her sister, and she remained at home and turned their home into a convent. And for the rest of her life, she lived there, except that at one point they attracted so many nuns, they had to build a larger convent down the street. So she basically, uh, that's why I say she never left her house. But she's probably the most extreme bilocator in Christian history. So, ironically, she never left her home. She was a nun for the rest of her life. She eventually became abbess, but she traveled to North America over 500
0: times. Hold on. Let me see if I got this right. She became a nun, but she never left her house.
1: Yeah, because her house was turned into a convent. So, uh, and then the convent was enlarged. Uh, they they built a larger one down the street, basically.
0: Oh, I see. Uh,
1: so she never left the town of Agrida. I guess would be the more accurate way of of stating it. She lived there all her life, but she also left it
0: <laughs> so so uh, how did she get to North America?
1: uh well, that's the mystery of by location, right? She would go into ecstasies her life she's she's a mystic who wrote quite a bit uh and we'll get to that soon enough. but uh she didn't really write about her mystical experiences, let's say the way that Teresa of Avila did or Meister Eckhart or or any other mystics that we have covered, she would go into ecstasy and levitate sometimes while in ecstasy. And during this period, these ecstasies of hers, she would miraculously appear in North America in what is now the borderland between the states of Texas and New Mexico. Reportedly over 500 times. And this gets us to another strange layer to work as a missionary among the Humano natives. And women in her time period, nuns, could go somewhere where there were missions, but they were not the ones who did the preaching. They, they were not the ones who actually uh, did the work of converting the natives. But that's what she did. And it's a very interesting story that is um well i guess you can say it's somewhat problematic in some way because with my location unlike levitation where you have you know eyewitnesses with my locations you have eyewitnesses yes but the eyewitnesses are in two different locations right and then the stories have to match up the people in let's call it place one spot number one where the mystic goes into ecstasy And spot number two where the mystic then appears the person is present in two locations and matching up as you can imagine matching up eyewitness accounts from remote Agreda and remote frontier New Mexico took years so there was a lot of confusion but the basic story is this when the Franciscan missionaries who were working in that region started to receive visits from the Humano people, a native tribe that they had not preached to, which was uh, at some distance from the mission itself. Well, they would come to the mission every few months to barter and trade objects and so on. And as the story is told, the Humanos started during these visits to ask for baptism. And the Franciscan missionaries would say, well, but you know, we haven't taught you anything. And they started to say, well, there's this uh, lady dressed in blue who's been coming, preaching to us and told us all about Jesus and uh, the Christian religion, and we want to be baptized. Now, the habit, the nun's habit for the branch of the Franciscan order that Maria de Agra belonged to, some of it was blue. Part of it was blue, very light blue. So it took a while for these Franciscans in New Mexico who were just very few in number and were so far from Mexico City, which is where their, their order had its, its headquarters, let's call it that. But eventually the, the stories began to match up and Maria de Agreda was identified as the lady in blue. Of course, meanwhile, she had been telling the nuns, back in Agreda, that she lived with, about her visits to these people. And not only that, there is uh, so there are some works of embroidery that she did with her own hands, in which she depicts some of the flora and fauna of that area, the American Southwest. But even though it took a long time, several years, for these stories to match up, once they were matched up, boy, it was very widely reported not just within franciscan circles but you know throughout spain and she became something of a celebrity so much so that the king of spain philip iv heard about her and on his way to france at that time france and spain were engaged in war he was going to the front one of the battlegrounds in this war he went out of his way to stop at agadon and visit Maria de and they became very close to each other and for the rest of both of their lives they wrote letters to each other over 300 letters the king would write on one side of the page and leave half the the other side blank so if we look in like two vertical columns he would write on the left-hand side and then the letters would arrive within a day or two which is immensely fast in those days And then Maria de Agreda would uh, write a response on the right-hand side that the king had left blank, back and forth, back and forth. And she actually became, for all practical purposes, an advisor to the king in both spiritual and political issues, which is just incredible. And he used her as a kind of confessor, non-sacramental confessor. She couldn't forgive his sins, but he wrote about his sins to her in great detail and begged her to please pray for him so he could stop sinning the guy was a incurable womanizer as they used to say and had plenty of illegitimate children none of whom could inherit the throne of course but he was very disturbed by his uncontrollable sexual urges in all his affairs and he blamed uh, the decline of spain on his his sins and would confess all this to her and back and forth between the two of them, over 300 letters. Since they both died within months of each other, those letters kept flowing until they were both basically so disabled by their illnesses that they were near death, and, and the letters stopped. So it was—you uh, can say it was—for the rest of his life and the rest of her life too—that she assumed this incredible role. But the bilocations actually only took place when María de Agreda was very young. They stopped when she was still in... I mean, they started and stopped when she was only in her 20s. Now, that's not uh, the end of her mystical life. As a matter of fact, that's this kind of the prelude to something uh, much more, if you can even believe this, much more amazing. The claim that she made that she, when she would go into ecstasy, began to receive visits from the Virgin Mary. And in these visits... Uh, Mary started telling her the story of her life, basically revealing many, many, many things that can't be found in the Gospels or in any of the early Christian literature. And Maria de Agreda basically became the note-taker, the scribe who wrote down what Mary was revealing to her. And over a period of several years, she wrote about one million words, this text is immense. The printed version is is always multi-volume. The English translation uh, eventually published is four volumes, very fat volumes. Some of the Spanish editions are, are up to six, seven, eight volumes, larger pages. This text, which the working title was The Life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, was eventually published after many encounters with uh, the inquisition and others who didn't want to see it published the title by which it's known is the mystical city of god in english la ciudad mystica de dios which is a strange title and we can get back to that maybe in a few minutes but anyway it's a life of the virgin mary which could count as an autobiography because it was dictated to maria de agreda it's an amazing book which begins with the Virgin Mary's parents and their story, Joachim and Anne, Saint Joachim and Saint Anne. There's plenty of material on them from the early Christian period and some medieval legends that she could have read. But the main point of this mission, let's call it a mission, that was given to her by the Virgin Mary was to reveal to the world how significant a role the Virgin Mary had played not just in the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, but that she was actually co-redemptrix of the human race, along with her son Jesus. So it was raising her to a very highly exalted place as co-redemptrix, co-redeemer. Stop for a second, consider the background. Protestants had denied Mary any such role as intercessor of any kind much less you know co-redemptrix no that was just total blasphemy to the protestants it was also somewhat let's say not necessarily a typical role assigned to mary by catholics either although in the middle ages that it had been building up so maria Agreda picks up on a tradition that has been building and building and building and she lays it all out as it turns out in this story which contains many, many, many things that are not in the Christian New Testament. Mary is a miracle worker, along with her son, Jesus. She's the mainstay of the infant church after Jesus is crucified, uh, resurrected, and ascends into heaven. In this narrative, that part of the story, Mary is the most important figure in the infant church, more so than St. Peter, although St. Peter, of course, is, you know, the the chief of the apostles, you know, with given that designated role by Jesus himself. Peter, of course, does a lot, but the, the Virgin Mary is absolutely uh, essential to the running of the, the early church in this story. So, how could this book be received? Of course, there's trouble. The Virgin Mary in this text explains that the reason that she is revealing all of these things in the 1600s is that the world was not ready for them In the first century, there are many things in this story, this autobiography, that could upset church authorities. And they do upset some church authorities. And actually, at one point, she's already written this text. And a copy has been sent to King Philip IV, who's very interested in all this and loves the book. But one of her confessors orders her to burn it. While her regular confessor was off on some other errand, a guest confessor, right, comes in to replace him. And this confessor, uh, he hears this about this text and starts reading it. He says, you've got to burn this. This has to be burned. This can't ever uh, see the light of day. So she burned it because she was ordered to do so. But she didn't tell this confessor that the king had a copy, which kind of saves the day, but not entirely. Because when her confessor comes back, he orders her to start writing again, write it over. And this is, of course, before photocopy machines, typewriters, or word processing systems. She has to write the whole thing over, and she did. She wrote it again. Of course, with constant visits and communications with the Virgin Mary. And the book is strange in many ways. But in the early part of the book, you simply get a narrative. At one point, as the narrative progresses, at the end of each chapter... The Virgin Mary uh, gives a little lesson, spiritual lesson, for those who might be reading the story. The book was controversial, to say the least. But when it is eventually published, there are those who want to condemn it and do condemn
0: it. Just out of curiosity, let me ask you, was, is the book written in Mary's voice?
1: As, uh, it's mostly Mary's voice, but there's also the narration Uh, So there's third person, you know, it's quite obvious that somebody's telling the story as it was told to her. Maria's telling the story as it was told to her. But then you also have long, long parts of the text, which is Mary speaking, especially at the end of each chapter with those little uh, spiritual lessons that she's trying to pass on to whoever might read this. Um, So yeah, that's why You know, it it sort of qualifies as an autobiography, but it's not fully an autobiography. But by the way, the so-called autobiography of St. Ignatius Loyola was not written by him. It was dictated to someone. And he's referred to in the text in the third person as the pilgrim. So there are autobiographies or (laughs) auto-hagiographies that are not entirely a first-person voice The person's supposedly telling their life story. Uh, There's a lot of quirkiness in this book, The Mystical City of God, but it ends up being condemned by the theological faculty of the University of Paris, and it receives a few other condemnations. But it is approved by many other theological faculties, including, of course, one as one would expect, Spanish universities, the University of Alcalá, the University of Salamanca, but also the French university, of uh, Toulouse, approves of it. And it gets translated into, it's written in Castilian Spanish. It gets translated into Latin, which makes it universal for learned people. And then into all the major vernacular languages of Western Europe, especially of you know Catholic Western Europe. But it's also translated into Polish. And it goes to Eastern Europe, the Eastern Catholics, Uh, There are various editions in Polish. So she becomes extremely well-known. And as soon as she dies in 1665, there are those who start the process of canonization on the way to sainthood. And has had become normal by the 17th century, late 17th century, you have to have an inquest and you have all people who knew Maria de agreda have to testify and answer a questionnaire. It's a very long and complex process. And there are three steps, which I don't know. I can't remember if we've covered this before, but this is one of the reforms that takes place in the Catholic Church in the 17th century, is that the process of naming someone a saint becomes much more quote-unquote scientific. And these questionnaires and people have to answer questions about miracles and, and so on and so forth but what is valued more for sainthood beginning in the 17th century although the miracles are important what's emphasized more and is valued much more is so-called heroic virtue so Maria de Agreda certainly qualifies for that but she doesn't qualify at the same level as let's say some of the other major holy men and women who are out in the missions or establishing new orders or dedicating themselves to helping the poor or the sick. So her process gets to the first stage, which is venerable. She's pronounced venerable. What does that mean? It means people can venerate her and ask her to intercede for them. But she never makes it to the second step, blessed or beatification. The process stalled. And as many, many people in the past few centuries have tried to restart the process, it's still moving, but she has never made it to sainthood, mostly because of the mystical city of God. where There are many uh, Catholics who view it with a measure of suspicion, because, well, obviously, it contains material about the life of Jesus, the life of Mary, and the history of the early church, which is extra biblical,
0: that's always been a problem. Can you give us some examples of some of the things that the Virgin Mary told her that are in the book that are deemed controversial?
1: Well, I'll, you know, it's kind of uh, let me start with number one. The main reason that the theological faculty of Paris condemned the book was that it had too many indecent details about the way in which Mary herself was conceived by her parents. Because, of course, one of the main messages of the book is that Mary was conceived immaculately. That is, she was conceived without the stain of original sin, which was still being debated back then and would be debated until the 19th century when it was finally pronounced, the doctrine. Yes, the Immaculate Conception. But the fact that St. Joachim and St. Anne had sex without any lust whatsoever, just like Adam and Eve before they fell. St. Augustine goes into great detail about what it was like for Adam and Eve to have sex before they fell, before the the, the sin of eating the forbidden fruit, is that it was a purely rational act that they would decide, okay, let's make a baby. (laughs) And the man could control the function of his reproductive organs. The fact that all of this, even though you find it in St. Augustine, in reference to Adam and Eve, the fact that it was there in the book concerning Joachim and Anne, the theological faculty of Paris found a little too much. That's one thing. It has details about the childhood of Virgin Mary, such as the fact that she was given over by her parents at a very early age because, of course, she was free of original sin. She was very... Holy and very mystical, that they turned her over to the temple in Jerusalem, and she was living at the temple throughout most of her childhood. But moving forward in time, this is where the more sort of unusual things are mentioned. During the Passion of Christ on the cross, and that's a very, very long section of the book with all sorts of details about the Passion of Christ that you don't find in the Gospels, she begged God. To allow her to feel all of the pain that her son was feeling and he granted her this favor right so as Jesus is being crucified well everything before that too as he's being tortured you know scourged and up through the crucifixion and being on the cross Mary felt every bit of pain that her son was feeling which is one of the reasons that she qualifies as co-redemptrix right and some of these details can be viewed in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of Christ, because he relied very heavily on the mystical city of God for some of the details that he includes in his film, including the fact that when Jesus gets scourged, you can see his bones. And in in the text, I've never seen the film, so I have to say I have not seen it for myself. But in the text, the scourging is so severe that huge chunks of flesh are taken off Jesus' back. And all of these pieces of flesh lay scattered about when it's over. But then angels come and pick them up and reassemble them. So that when you know, Jesus is resurrected, he's resurrected whole. Yeah, with you know scars and open wounds. But that's not in the Gospels.
0: <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is that in the Gospel of Luke... Simeon the Blessed tells Mary, and I quote here, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Yeah. So in a way, it it is in the Gospels uh, in an indirect fashion. Right, right.
1: And Maria de Agreda is very careful. She builds everything in this text in some way can be linked to the new testament somewhat obliquely at times but it can also be linked to traditions and legends that are have been part of christian faith since the early church through the middle ages actually in the 15th century it became very common and this it begins in the low countries and then it spreads to spain eventually became very common to have devotion to Mary's suffering so she's building on this and that's not necessarily something that some ultra Orthodox theologian might object to but then she has things that someone might object to because you can't find them anywhere is uh, many of Mary's deeds in the early church in the early years of the church up until the point of her death how she goes from place to place is flown between places by angels And she actually gives you an exact number of angels that ferried Mary from one place to another. That could upset somebody, that kind of detail. One of these legends actually takes Mary to Spain, where St. James is, of course, establishing Christianity in Iberia. And he's having trouble. Poor St. James needs help. And what kind of help does he need? Well, as was the case with the Apostle Paul, in the acts of the apostles which is in the new testament the local jewish communities did not greet him with open arms <laughs> so the jews of iberia are giving saint james a very difficult time and mary comes and helps him, and she's taken there from the near east all the way to iberia by a band of angels so this is the kind of detail that of course would totally upset any protestant christian and has upset some Catholics over the centuries. But here's the most important thing to say about a revelation such as this, received by a a mystic, is that if it's approved by the church, it is still considered a personal revelation, which means that although it's not something that's false, much less horribly false, it's not something that anyone is obligated to believe. And that's a distinction made centuries ago by Catholic theologians, that the distinction between personal revelations, which don't have to be believed by everyone, and revelations that do have to be believed if you want to be considered a faithful Catholic. And this includes the Immaculate Conception, which was not defined or established as, as a doctrine until the 19th century. Prior to the 19th century, there were many Catholic theologians who argued against this doctrine. However, once it's declared to be a doctrine, either by a council or by a pope, no one is obligated to believe it. Which is why there's still many followers of Maria de Agreda who are pushing for her beatification and canonization. And there is actually a very strong movement among conservative Catholics to actually have Mary declared officially co-redemptrix of the human race. So Maria de Agreda uh, has become a very important figure in an ironic way to two very different groups of people, two very different groups of Catholics. On the one hand, the conservative Catholics who are very focused on Mary and want to see her declared co-redemptrix of the human race, and feminist Catholics, right, who see her as a model for the... The way in which god works through women not just the virgin mary but somebody like maria diagrida look at the responsibility given to her she's she's as important perhaps as the four evangelists matthew mark luke and john so catholic feminists who for instance would like to see women ordained as priests they like maria de Agreda very much for the role that she has played it's an exemplar of the way in which god doesn't differentiate between men and women, giving all the important roles to men, and so on and so forth. So these are two groups of Catholics that normally don't like to be in the same room together. <laughs> but Maria de Agreda, like all mystics, has always had this curious diversity of roles that play
0: simultaneously, that people end up on one side or the other. You know, what's interesting is I listened to a podcast by two Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox priests. It's called The Lord of Spirits. And I find it very interesting because they, they talk a lot about the early church fathers and early doctrine and a lot about the Old Testament and, and history. And it's they go they do real deep dives into it. And I can't remember what episode it was. It was two or three years ago. But they got into a discussion on the Virgin Mary and they sort of went back into Jewish history and the importance of the king's mother and how the kings chosen by God, their mothers weren't just anybody. Hmm. There was was an importance to it on who the mother was. The father was not as important, they pointed out, Mm -hmm. but it was really based on the mother. And I can't give any examples right now, but you brought that – speaking of that, the co-redemptrix, obviously, I'm not a theologian. (laughs) I'm not going to get into the ramifications of something uh, of that that magnitude, but it reminded me of of that episode because that really stuck with me from a perspective of God's chosen kings and obviously Mm -hmm. Jesus being the king that God chose – his son, and how important the mother was to that king being chosen.
1: Yeah, and that, that has parallels, of course, secular parallels. It has parallels uh, religiously in not just the Jewish tradition, but the early Christian tradition, especially when Christianity becomes basically the state religion of the Roman Empire. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, even more so because The Roman Empire survives in the east, Constantinople, and actually all of the most significant decisions about Christian belief were made in the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Almost all the councils met either in Constantinople or in suburbs of Constantinople. The one that occurred the farthest away was the Council of Ephesus, but Ephesus was still western coast of present-day Turkey was very much part of the empire and within the imperial circles. So, yeah. And one of the early Christian, the most divisive issues in the first five centuries of Christian history was whether or not Mary should be called Mother of God. Uh, The Greek word theotokos, God-bearer, is a term that began to be applied to Mary at first in the liturgies, in ritual. But then there were some who objected to this, saying, no, wait a minute, you can't say she's the mother of God. She's only the mother of Jesus. And the next thing you know, there's division in the church over this. And it's finally decided through difficult discussions and the uh, councils having to meet with Christians calling each other heretics back and forth. It's decided, yes, yes, it's perfectly fine for Mary to be called Mother of God, because whatever applies to the human in Jesus also applies to the divine. You can't separate. Them. And it's this paradox. Yes, Mary can be called the Mother of God because Jesus was God incarnate. But it caused a schism, and some churches broke off. And the key date to remember is 451, the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, which is near Constantinople, where it's, it's declared a total mystery, a paradoxical mystery, but nonetheless true. Jesus, fully human, like any other human, but also at the very same time, fully divine. So Mary was from very early days in Christian history assigned a very special role, not just as the king's mother, but as mother of God Himself, which is one of the reasons that the whole that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, began to develop in the middle ages is that if mary a human being was to carry god uh, in her womb this woman had to be super special right uh, she couldn't have the stain of original sin she was hand-picked for this very special role and there's nobody else like her maria de agreda continued to elaborate on this but as i said before One has to remember in the background, on the horizon, you've got the Protestant denial of Mary being an intercessor.
0: Now, you mentioned Mel Gibson used her book to put together the Passion of Christ or to put together a backstory in in the Passion of Christ. And that's a contemporary example. But I imagine this book also had a lot of influence on others throughout history. Can you tell us a little bit oh, about yes, that? Oh, it, yes, it has.
1: But, you know, this is the um, the richness of the Catholic mystical tradition, as well as Catholic theology, is that you can have individuals like Maria de Agreda who are influential in some circles, but not others. And there's always, um, I, I guess you, you can compare it to a very well-stocked store, Or nowadays, maybe a a website like Amazon. I'm not trying to be facetious here or or disrespectful, but there's a lot of choice. You can pick what you want to focus on and to be influenced by because there's a great deal of variety within the boundaries of orthodoxy. And the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is case in point, right? For centuries, you could be Catholic and be arguing against it and the same for maria de Agreda, you could be very devoted to her and love her book and actually not only lobby for her canonization but lobby for as people are doing nowadays proclamation that she is co-redemptrix but the matter has not yet been settled so catholics can pick and choose whether or not but maria de Agreda had a very very strong influence on those who were trying to convince the Catholic Church that Mary should be declared free of the stain of original sin. So the technical term, I was trying to avoid the technical term, but now I I need to bring it up. The two parties in the dispute, was she or was she not immaculately conceived? The side that argued that she was not immaculately conceived were known as maculists, Immacula is a stain in Latin. Those, of course, who, like Maria de Agreda, were arguing the opposite were known as immaculists. And back and forth and back and forth. She had a great deal of influence on those who wanted to promote Mary's uh, immaculate conception. And you, she was taken and quoted by very, very, you know, serious scholarly theologians, as well as by Catholics who were not theologians, but were very devout. And I should point out that the Franciscan order, which is the order she belonged to, was always on the side of Mary being immaculately conceived. And the other side, those opposed to it, the order most closely linked to the maculist position was the Dominican order.
0: Going back to St. Francis of Assisi in our last episode, uh, the Dominicans always seem to be the troublemakers.
1: For Franciscans, most definitely,
0: yes.
1: (laughs) There's a, you know, one could call it a friendly rivalry. There is a rivalry. There's always, between religious orders and the Catholic Church, there's always some degree of rivalry. But yes, uh, Dominicans and Franciscans have had some very, very, very pronounced rivalries. And this is perhaps one of the most significant. Uh, It was also Dominican theologians who kept denouncing Teresa of Avila, to the inquisition up until the point when she was beatified right that's when they had to stop but yeah dominicans have figured prominently in debates and disputes between them franciscans dominicans and jesuits and dominicans and carmelites so as maria de agreda so well proves a mystic who receives messages can become a divisive Individual within the Catholic tradition itself.
0: Going back to Maria de Agreda's early life, she was she also falls into that category of very extreme mystics.
1: Yes, in terms of the amount of time devoted to prayer and self denial, asceticism. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, everyone doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to be a mystic. You end up being shaped by your parents so maria de agreda her two parents her mother and father were both heavily heavily into prayer and self-denial and as a matter of fact her father used to carry a life-size cross around the house very heavy while he prayed so from very early on uh, maria de agreda started having visions and ecstasies even as a young girl and also devoted herself to praying fasting disciplining herself you know it's a self-flagellation some whipping and the very fact that her parents ended up separating to each go their own way to become monastics it might sound weird to Catholics in, in the 21st century but that was commonly accepted as a very good thing okay you've had your kids you've raised your kids Your kids are on the right track go for it (laughs) disband the nuclear family and devote yourself 100% to prayer and self-denial so her ecstasies which began early in life astounded uh, those around her and actually there's a not so funny part of the story which is that when she was in her late teens early 20s she was already a nun you know she would levitate while in ecstasy which meant as we've discussed before that you know many of these mystics when they're in an ecstasy they're like in a cataleptic state they don't know what's going on around well people would come to maria's house which was her convent to see her levitate and because her body was so nearly weightless they would shove it around to watch it float in the air from one end of the room to the other, or actually blow on it to see it waft across the room. And all of this while she was in a cataleptic state. When she finally found out that this was going on, because no one told her this, they were doing this, she was mortified. She was just absolutely mortified. But this is 17th century Catholicism. Right? where these things are considered not just possible, but people talk about it as if it's just a fact that this is happening. But being a saint is never easy, but being a, a mystic who goes into cataleptic ecstasies, <laughs> all sorts of things can happen that you're not aware of at the very same time. But the great mystery remains, of course, how can anybody be in two places at the same time? Maria well, de Agreda had no way of explaining it. And as a matter of fact, she said that she had no idea how it was possible, but she knew she was there. Place number two was very real to her. And she was actually asked, well, how did you preach to the Indians? That's what they were called, of course. How did you preach to them? You don't know their language. She said, I don't know, but I did.
0: (laughs) And she actually had recollections of the conversations she had with them?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. She claims to have had full recollections of not just the exchanges that she had with them, but the weather, the landscape, the flora, the fauna, and uh, of the fact that she knew she was somewhere else, for sure. But let me add a little footnote here, which I think is very interesting, but I don't want to spend too much time on it because it'll just distract us from her story. But she was not the only nun in Spain. Who claimed to be making visits to people who needed converting? Uh, there were some who preceded her, especially one other Franciscan nun, Luisa de Carrion. She's also known by her place, Carrion being a, in northern Spain. Luisa de Carrion also was very well known for visiting people who needed converting. And actually, during the early part of this narrative where people are trying to figure out who the lady in blue is. Some were assigning to Luisa de Carrion the role of being the lady in blue. But it got all ironed out, straightened out, and Maria de Agreda was identified as the lady in blue who visited the Humano natives. And in the southwest, it's a very lively legend. Let's put it that way. That's that's usually what it's called in secular terms, the legend of the lady in blue, La Dama de Azul.
0: And there's actual recorded testimony from these groups in, in Texas or New yes, Mexico? Yeah,
1: there is. You know, And because it took so long to piece all of this together, there are a lot of loose ends. And there were controversial issues about the testimonies. And, of course, you've got Franciscans who are handling all of these testimonies and all, all of this makes their mission look great of course so the naysayers and there were many uh, especially in the beginning in the 18th century 19th century 20th century who dismiss all of this as you know pure franciscan fabrication well they just made it all up of course they're going to have one of their nuns you know visiting the natives but there are some very very strange and by strange i mean things that point towards this not being a fabrication. Strange twists in the story, such as the fact that the the nuns in Agreda were hearing these stories about the New World natives from Maria de Agreda before the story of the Humanos came out from the mission. And we have the testimony of those Franciscans who actually, you know, they're actually a little bit peeved at the Humanos who came to the, to their mission to trade because they were being asked the franciscans were being asked to travel a great long distance to baptize these people and they had no clue how they had been christianized so they actually put them off for years until they finally just decided oh yes well they got the story of this nun in agreda who claims to be doing this Oh well, let's put one and two and two together, and uh, oh yeah, let's go and baptize all the humanos. And they did; they went and baptized them. And that's just the beginning of the story, not the end of the story.
0: Well, it seems to me during all these conversations we've we've been having on mystics, there's no shortage of controversy.
1: Oh yeah, well if you you know claiming that you're crossing over into some other dimension, or you're receiving messages from Christ or the Virgin Mary, it puts a strain on the fabric of belief. You have to trust this person is telling you the truth and not fabricating all of this. So that's always the point where anyone who makes these claims inevitably runs into
0: some kind of resistance. I'm sure it's not helped by the fact that for every true mystic, you probably have a hundred, maybe a thousand fake ones.
1: Well, I'm not saying this to plug my new book, which will be out in September, but about one-third of that book is dedicated to examining the frauds, that is, contemporaries of Maria de Agreda and Joseph of Cupertino, 17th century, monks and nuns who faked everything and got caught, and those who fell somewhere in between, like this other nun I mentioned, Luisa de Carrion, she was never pronounced a fake, but she was distrusted to the point that she was removed from her convent and sent to another one. And people were forbidden to talk about her or to keep any texts related to her because of the possibility of fraud perhaps having been involved. It's it's a two-edged sword, the mystical message. It can actually point towards the divine and the sacred, but there are those who will take advantage of the celebrity that comes from being a mystic and fake the whole thing
0: well we're all looking forward to reading your book when it comes out and you know we're going to have to do an episode on it as soon as it's released we're getting to the end of the show so what do we have coming up on the next episode
1: well uh we keep especially now once we got to the 16th century we keep running into these protestants right who are always on the horizon always in the background because of their difference, the difference in attitude towards mysticism. So that's what we'll deal with next time. What was so different about Protestant attitudes? What was it that they objected to in traditional medieval Christian mysticism? What did they lay aside? What did they criticize? But what did they keep? And what influence did the Christian mystical tradition have? on the development of Protestant spirituality or Protestant devotion. And we're not going to focus on any individual uh, in particular, but just the broad range, very broad range of Protestant attitudes towards all of these things that we've been dealing with up to now. It's also controversial.
0: (laughs) Of course, we can't have an episode on Christian mysticism without controversy.
1: No. It's inescapable.
0: Well, thanks again, Carlos. Thank you. Really enjoyed our conversation today and looking forward to the next one. And we want to thank all of you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.